0: Velkommen til live fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek, her i Den Sorte Diamant, hvor vi lige har sagt farvel til Sylvie Kaufmann og Lykke Friis. Det har været på scenen til en samtale om Europa lige nu, og det blev en af de rigtig gode aftener her i huset, hvor man både bliver meget underholdt og meget klogere. Og det var desuden tydeligt, at de virkelig nød hinandens selskab på scenen og blev inspireret. Tilbage i 2010 blev Sylvie Kaufmann den første kvindelige chefredaktør for Le Monde, Det mest indflydelsesrig dagbladet i Europa. I dag skriver hun ledere og klummer for avisen og ligesom internationale kommentator, som bliver læst i Frankrig, men det er bestemt også i resten af verden. Lykke Friis er jo nok kendt for de fleste i dansk publikum. Hun har været klimaminister og prorektor for KU, og i dag er hun direktør for Tænketanken Europa. En af de ting selv Kaufmann kommer ind på fra sin egen karriere er at hun i mange år mens hun arbejdede på Le Mont havde brugt sig over at der ikke var flere kvinder i ledelsen. Men en dag så sagde hendes chef vi har jo tilbudt dig at få en chefstilling mange gange, og du bliver ved med at sige nej. Og det sagde hun så ja til der til sidst i 2010. Men hør han selv fortælle om det her. Her kommer Silvi Kaufmann og lykke frisk.
1: Silvi I know you're not a football person. So you didn't watch France playing against Denmark. And I'll not mention football because of the match going on at a certain stage. <laughs> Nothing is as important as French politics. That's why I'm here. And what happens in Europe? But the Tour de France yes. is coming to town. So do you follow that?
2: Of course. Can <laughs> I you cannot be French? Follow, yeah, I'm going to follow it this year at least. And uh, <laughs> since I know you're a fan, I've, I've done my homework. And um, so you know, obviously, that the Tour de France was created in 1903. And, but it's only since 1954 that it started to have the Grand Départ abroad. And <laughs> let me think, I think it had 23 uh, times it was started abroad. And out of these 23 times, six of them were in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Five in Belgium, makes sense. Um, four in Germany and two in Luxembourg, so I think it's, it was only about time that it would start in Denmark. Uh, you know, since you uh, have, your, your, have a reputation for being such great bike riders, even though uh, Trump's former ambassador here <laughs> <laughs> thinks it's only because you cannot afford to buy cars. <laughs> <laughs> but we in Europe know that it's because you love bicycles and bikes and bike riding. So if I were uh, advisor to Macron, which I'm not, obviously, um, I would tell him July first, Copenhagen is the place to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how important
1: is that sports event still for France?
2: Oh, it's very important. Well, is France. it soft it's power? Very, what is it? Oh no 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 no! It's just a basic very popular sport and uh, you know crowds go around the all the whole itinerary and they line up the roads and they support uh, the 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 uh, champions and and not only the champions but all these guys who uh, ride behind to to push them and to support the the, the leaders and it's it's a very uh, of course, you know, it's a very demanding sport and it's very, very tough. And so, and we actually like not only the champions, we like the guys behind. Mm. Yeah, who do the tough job. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was a child, there was this uh, guy, Raymond Poulidor, who was always number two. I don't think he ever won a tour. And he was a hero of France? He was the hero, okay. yeah. He, he, his name even bega- became a kind of brand, you know, mm. to be a Pulido is really, you, you're number two, but you're the most important guy who, yeah, so yeah, no, it's very important.
1: Good, but I think we'll move on from the sports <laughs> part section of this. Although, I mean, there, there is obviously a point regards to this, because as was mentioned, I had the great pleasure of uh, chairing your president when he was in town in 2018. I'm told he still remembers it vividly. Yeah, uh, I remember it at least, but <laughs> and, and the, because what happened was that, unlike you, he was not on time. <laughs> so basically what happened was that I was standing Surprised. here for 45 minutes, um we had i mean students who had been queuing up for for days basically to see your president we had it was being broadcasted to libraries all over all over denmark and at a certain stage well, i i basically i told so many jokes even the bad <laughs> ones that i know and then i had no idea what to do and then i just started to tap dance um, <laughs> and then I heard he's coming, he's coming, and I thought, okay, now he's going. He, he must arrive. Then that was according to plan. He saw the uh, manuscripts of Søren Kierkegaard. I'll show you them afterwards. Um, but then he arrived, and then he actually made sort of the, the came out with the breaking news that the uh, Grand D'epart would come <laughs> to would come to <laughs> would come to Denmark. So that was that was fascinating. But what was even more fascinating was obviously, I mean, the amount of students uh-huh. in 2018. Denmark wanted to see, to listen to your president was absolutely an astonishing. I mean, for for, for any sort of foreign uh, visitor, I mean, that was just, I mean, he was the Mm -hmm. star. And afterwards, I mean, selfies and whatever, people were sort of standing ovations. So my first question, what happened? Or was that simply that he was always more popular abroad? Or what's your evaluation now if you look upon the... also after the presidential election, and as we all know, we just followed the uh, parliamentary election yesterday. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, 2018 was a very different time. Uh, uh, He had just been elected a year before, and uh, of course, when he was elected, there was a lot of enthusiasm, not only in France, but all over Europe. And, um, you know, he was supposed to, <laughs> I think he was, some people even so thought that he would become a leading voice in the world and so on. But in Europe, definitely, there was a lot of hope and he campaigned on Europe. Mm-hmm. Remember all those flags, European flags we had during the campaign? Um, and the and
1: anthem it, when he won.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, in the Louvre, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's still very much a pro-European voice, definitely, but the enthusiasm is gone. Um, as we <laughs> saw uh, last night with the results of the first, uh, of the, of the, uh, the first round of the parliamentary election, um, he lost a lot of ground, you know, and uh, this, the, the result is a very serious warning for him, I think. Um, I mean, he was re-elected, Which is quite an achievement. This this should be uh, said. But this because
1: the last one who was re-elected
2: was oh a long time ago. Yeah, I think no, no. I think yeah uh, was Chirac. But Chirac had uh, had a different had a majority in the opposition. Yeah, Mm? in in parliament, the the opposition was had the majority in parliament. So he had to deal with the cohabitation. You know, a prime minister of, of of another party of an opposing party. So, um, Macron was actually, in the Fifth Republic since 1958, the first re-elected head of state with uh, 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 his own majority. Um, Now, is this majority going to change? Uh, We'll see at the second round next Sunday, but um, he has probably not, but he will most likely uh, lose the absolute majority so he will have to um, compose with other p- political parties or with you know other f- political forces um, it's going to be much more difficult for him and so I think his image yes is tarnished by this result and um, so why did it happen why did this enthusiasm mm. uh, fade away um, there's a succession of events some of some are, you know, of his own making, and others are just outside events like the pandemic, the war, um, the war in Ukraine, and energy prices, everything which goes with it. But um, I think he, you know, later that year, when you met him in 2018, in November, he went around before there was all these ceremonies for the hundredth uh, anniversary of, the, um, of the, the end of the world of World War One. He went around uh, eastern France to uh, early November, end of October, to meet people and talk to people in France. And when he came back, he gave an interview, and I remember I was very struck by this sentence. He said, "I have failed to reconcile." French people with their leaders, so he could feel that there was this gap uh, and that the French people were becoming really disillusioned with politics, with, uh, with politicians, with political parties. Well, uh, political parties were already being uh, crushed because that's the way he achieved his first victory uh, in 2017 by, you know, uh, crushing all the main the, the mainstream parties on center left, center right, the Socialist Party, the Les Républicains on the right, and and having this his own centrist um, party at that time called En Marche. Right now it's called Renaissance. Uh, but renaming it doesn't mean you know building. It's just that's one of the other reasons when if we want to see why it happened, uh, we still have an unfinished uh, political landscape in France. Um, (laughs) It was a field of ruins uh, in 2017 and it's uh, not rebuilt. You know, we had deconstruction, we haven't had the full reconstruction. Uh, so we have an unstructured political landscape. We have political parties, which are named political parties, but they are not real political parties. They are kind of empty. So there are no members when you shares, say Very few members. The membership is uh, is uh, really um, weaker and weaker. They have um, not been able to generate new ideas. You know, political parties have a very important role in democracies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Folks terms of yeah, well, in terms it? of organizing uh, the political life, uh, not only in parliament, but and organizing political elections, of course, but also uh, in getting people together, in selecting candidates, uh, and in generating ideas. Mm. And um, I mean, Macron himself is generating a lot of ideas, sometimes a bit too many, um, but uh, he. He needs an apparatus behind. He needs people to, um, you know, to engineer, to uh, implement, to um, explain. Explain absolutely. So we don't have this. This is really a kind of uncooked political but system, and it's it's a problem. And and I think the this this uh, uh, bad result. I mean, you know, disappointing for him, for definitely. Him, yeah. Um, result at the first round yesterday is, is partly of his making. I think. But
1: when he referred to the fact that he had noticed that something had gone wrong in his own
2: communication mm-hmm. with, with the voters, what did he refer to then as, as sort of being examples of that? Well, uh, one thing I think he could sense and that we have really seen last night, yesterday, is the low turnout. Yeah. Yesterday, and that's probably the... the, the most striking result of the election yesterday is that we had the lowest turnout ever Mm. in the Fifth Republic, so it was Uh, 47.5%. And um, this is very bad, this is very worrying. So I think this is what he also realized, that people um, um, don't trust politics anymore. Um, They don't think it can uh, be useful to them. Um, they don't, you know, politicians and and political institutions are very, in polls, have a very low trust index uh, in France. So, um, and also, I think he could probably feel the beginning of the anger which was expressed during the Gilets jaunes movement. Mm. So, because after this trip, like, I think, uh, um, a couple of weeks after after November 11 and this... uh, anniversary of World War I, uh, of the end of World War I, this movement started Mm. three weeks later. And it was uh, extremely violent, as you can remember. Uh, It was very, very worrisome. It's a traumatic um, memory, I think, for many of the French people. And uh, the level of hatred which was expressed during that movement uh, at politicians, at himself, I think mm. he was very shocked himself, because at, at some stage he even had to retreat to his car because, mm. uh, for fear of being attacked uh, physically. And, you know, uh, public buildings were attacked, one uh, was arsoned. So it was... I think this is what was coming up and he could feel it. Um, so he knows uh, there was a problem and... He's starting. He's trying all the time with new ideas. With you know, for instance, when he was elected, uh, re-elected in uh, April this year, he, though, as I said, his re-election was a political achievement and a big success. But he was not triumphalist at all. In his speech, Mm. when he, um, um, in his victory speech on, on, on that night, he was not like "I've won" and thank you know he was uh, restrained and uncharacteristically restrained, I would say. And I think also, he, you know, it's still this awareness that something is still wrong in our, uh, in our democracy. So he said, we. He, s- he promised that he would use a new method, that we needed new um, methods to resolve this uh, crisis of our democracy, which is not specific to France, actually, uh, as you know, but he said, I will invent, we have to invent new methods. So I think (laughs) we're still there. Um, um, He, a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, he gave an interview where he mentioned that he wanted to create this uh, National Council of uh, Refoundation, Of rebuilding, the Conseil National de Refondation, which would be a body, uh, you know, bringing together citizens, uh, elected. Officials, um, uh, NGOs—we don't know exactly. (laughs) It still has to be uh, defined.
1: But but that's an attempt. I mean, it's not as if democracies—I mean, all over the place—are
2: thriving. We'll see see what happens. But we have this—you know—we are at this moment in time in our uh, democracy where we know we have to invent new forms of deliberation, new forms of participation of citizens. Uh, beyond our uh, institutions, mm. yeah, yeah. But maybe I should just—I
1: mean—clarify the reason why your president was late was uh, was actually a crisis. I mean, in <laughs> 2008, it wasn't just because he was late, late. I mean, it was because the uh, minister of environment uh, resigned yeah. in the morning, uh, so, uh, so that was I the know, explanation. Yeah, that so. But if we move sort of to the to what we saw yesterday, and also the campaign we had—I mean, the uh, parliamentary election. Having I mean, followed the presidential election. It was all about Le Pen, Le Pen, Le Pen, and mm-hmm. Kong, obviously. And then suddenly, sort of, when we all started to watch this drama uh, with the parliamentary election, it was all about uh, the So uh, Minotaur, Yeah, Minotaur, exactly, Minotaur. so on, 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 on the far left. <laughs> yeah. so, so what happened to Le Pen? What happened to her cats? Yeah. And so forth, I mean, <laughs> is she still there, or
2: well, what happened? Yeah, the cats, I think, are okay. The cats are yeah. okay, okay, that's... Yeah. Uh, the six of them, yeah. The six yeah, of them. Yeah. goodness. Um, uh, but well, we're not too worried about them. We're more worried okay. about her. Um, she's not really okay, uh, though. Her party has been doing well in this election. She did well in campaign. what terms, yeah. You know, she after after. Uh, so she got in the runoff of the presidential election. She lost, as usual, because in fact she gets votes, but I don't think French people ever considered having her as a president you know but if you want to have
1: voters engage and you want to have them to vote yeah how on why on earth as a politician are you not campaigning
2: yeah because she's not you know a traditional politician I mean she's just Marine Le Pen and she's I mean I I don't know she she uh, after the presidential election maybe she needed a break maybe she needed to rest but she disappeared she didn't get the and top so position. her people yeah, okay. did campaign and okay. they still managed to get 19% of the vote yesterday so it's not nothing right if you don't campaign and you still get 19% of the vote that's, that's pretty interesting yeah, yeah, that's, yeah I'm pretty good so um, but she'll I think she'll probably uh, gradually leave the scene um, and you know have new people coming after her um, but uh, so I was talking about this field of ruins. I mm-hmm. think we, ha- we are seeing emerging out of this field three blocks and we'll see whether they get to something really solid. Um, so, three blocks, we have the centrist block, which is uh, what we call the presidential majority. We'll see whether it stays a majority. But um, So, Macron's uh, uh, movement, uh, Renaissance, and a couple of centrist uh, movements. Um, then you have the far right, um, National Rally, Rassemblement National. Zemmour lost yesterday. He didn't. is um, not even in the runoff in his constituency, so he's out of the landscape, I think. Yeah, which is not a bad thing. And um, and so the third block is, and this is new in a way, or it's new again. It's uh, it's the left. Uh, And this we hear, that's the interesting thing about yesterday's result, that we may have a rebalancing of French politics to the left after several years of domination by centre-right and and far-right. So how was it achieved? Um, I think Macron made a big mistake during this campaign that he didn't campaign also, like mine Le Pen,
1: <laughs> and why did he yeah, not yeah, campaign? Yeah. Because he, he, he's the president. I think he, he, he
2: hoped that, like in 2017, the parliamentary election would just be a natural sequel to uh, his uh, uh, victory uh, at the presidential election, and he preferred to be passive, mm. uh, so that you know there wouldn't be too many controversies. You know, people wouldn't argue, fight about the pension reform and these these issues. Or uh, about the cost of living, which are the issues that people mm-hmm. are really worried about at the moment, and um, and that you know, the dynamic would just flow. But that was a mistake because Mélenchon, um, so who is the leader of the radical left party um, La France Insoumise (France Unbowed) uh, in English, um, really was extremely active. He he had a very good campaign. He set the agenda, and he made an alliance with three small other parties on the left, the Greens, the Socialist Party, or what is left of it, which is very, very little, um, and the Communist Party, which is also very little. But having these four parties together with him as a leader, it managed to, uh, he succeeded in, in, you know, having a real dynamic. And so, you know, something was happening there. And I think the few, you know, the 40, uh, the the people who did decide to go to vote uh, were more enthusiastic about him and the others, you know, who thought, you know, it will just be the same thing. And, let, uh, and what old. kind of
1: France did he then campaign on? What was his main vision? I mean, I read about leaving NATO Mélenchon. and, uh, yeah, and uh, breaking, uh, going up against EU rules, so but presumably th- that was not the major issue in the French campaign.
2: No, it was very much on the cost of living, raising the minimum wage to 1,500 mm. euros. That's a, uh, one of his big main promises. Um, you know, increasing public spending for hospitals, for education, uh, uh, raising the salaries of public servants, so it's a lot of...
1: Cuba pu- without... A self- lot
2: of money, uh, public money involved, so that would obviously, if it happened, that would obviously didn't go well with the European Union, and he said, well, the hell with the European Union, we'll just disobey, disobey uh, uh, European treaties if they don't suit us, so... Um, you know, I don't think that will happen because he will not have a majority. But obviously public spending appeals, you know, we've, as in most of European countries, uh, we went through this pandemic by whatever it takes, Mm. yeah, uh, spending a lot of money. So now we also have this uh, habit (laughs) of, uh, uh, you know, something goes wrong, okay, public money. yeah, so
1: and this field of ruins, I mean, do you see any sort of... Uh, Prospects in the future of basically new parties then, or old parties uh, reappearing? I mean, okay, one should not argue that now at the moment that Olaf Scholz, uh, German chancellor, is having a magnificent sort of uh, opinion poll mm. if we read them. But I mean, one always—I mean, know, people also yeah. thought that the German SPD was was dead, and then yeah, suddenly absolutely. he became chancellor. So, yeah. so do you see what kind of dynamic do you see? I, say then I, I agree
2: developing? with you. In 2017, when this uh, you know this upheaval in France happened with. All with these political parties and this political system, when we thought it would eventually, you know, it was collapsing. That, but that eventually it would be transformed into mm. something mm. Uh, different mm. and new and uh, solid, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, I thought the same would go uh, with Germany. I, mm. you know, the CD, CDU and, and uh, SPD were very were weaker. Uh, there was a stage when they were becoming weaker and weaker, and I thought that would ha- they would go through the same process, just slower. But, in fact, it didn't happen in Germany. It's very interesting. It's their, their culture of stability is, is, uh, is obviously different from ours. And, um, and yeah, and so their history, because their histori- parties
1: yeah. after World War II simply yeah. played a much bigger role. Volkspartei, and they were the ones who
2: yeah, transformed
1: German society. And also,
2: yeah. they have this Green Party. That's yeah. a very important element in Germany. They have this very uh, strong, uh, dyma- dynamic, creative and and rational I mean creative but also responsible um, political party I mean they are very you know and in France it's very strange that's another uh, thing that uh, is very difficult to explain that people are very sensitive to ecology to the environment particularly young people but you know it's obviously people can see the effects of global warming and so it's really an issue that people are, are worried about but it doesn't Translate into a political force. um, Mm. uh, Our green uh, parties are uh, because we had two um, are very weak, and uh, Yannick Jadot, who was running for president, is not a bad, you know, he's he's a nice person and so on. But he he, he didn't make it. So uh, I mean, he didn't make it in terms of he had like eight or nine percent of the vote. So that's Mm. really so. Why cannot we do what the Germans? green do it's it's a mystery to me uh, but we do you know I think in the coming few years we need to <laughs> find a way to reorganize our our uh, political life to make this democracy uh, function properly and people um, attracted again to taking part in it because mm. this is the problem that people, don't take part in this political life, and it's uh, mm-hmm. unhealthy. But maybe
1: as an idea to our organizers, they should invite then Robert Harbeck, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the German uh, minister of, uh, of climate and also mm-hmm. economics, to see, to hear, I mean, how he managed to, mm-hmm. to pull that yeah. one off. or oh, Annelia Baerbock. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to, to France, although, I mean, as was also said, you are now living for... Six months in total, you'll be living in in, in Berlin. Um, but before we move on to to the war, basically uh, Ukraine, Renaissance without Macron.
2: Renaissance without Macron. Yeah, if he's not if he, ah, he's not
1: he, running next ah, time, we I still have according. him for five years. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. I mean, you have to prepare. Can, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, you, that's to, uh,
2: you can interview him again here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if he maybe well, he'll come to the Tour de France. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You'll send him to me. And, uh, <laughs> Um, you mean after in five years' time, what will happen? Well, I mean, we just watch
1: an election where your point feels ruined, and then, well, I mean, if if he's not there anymore, what's going to happen then? Do you see sort of another sort of person within uh, that movement sort of could somehow develop... Mm-hmm. A new
2: party or reinvent
1: that it party. Can, yeah, it
2: movement. may happen outside of his party. Yeah, we can. It, there are a couple of people who are already looking to uh, 20. What is it? 2027, I think. Yeah. Um, we'll still be young. Yeah, 2027. <laughs> so one of them is Edouard Philippe, who was the prime minister, who was Macron's first prime minister uh, in his first term. Uh, who's formed another party <laughs> called Horizons. Um, well, We have more parties you know, in absolutely Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, here, and you, you switch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we also yeah, switch here. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's also Something an interesting do. model, yeah. Um, well, you've
1: watched Borgen, so...
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, Edouard Philippe is one of them. And then we need to have um, new people emerging, particularly on the left. We have to see what happens on the left, because... Mm. Obviously, you see, there's a sensitivity on the left uh, of, of voters for the left. You know, there's there's some uh, appetite for a left force, and and yeah, I, yeah. I think Mélenchon, you know, he's 70. He already said he would leave the scene. I don't know whether he's going to do it seriously. He's not. He didn't run for parliament, so he's not. Uh, he he will not be an MP. Um, and will the Socialist Party? Uh, be reborn or will it morph into another social-democratic-like party? Um, we'll see. This is very open, mm. but something has to happen there. We cannot be left just with the Communist Party, which is, uh, you know, past century and which is actually their candidate for or the presidential election, was a very yeah. nice yeah. guy, but, you know, yeah. Or a successor to Le Pen, so I think... Um, We're at a point where these things are going to happen, yeah, uh, hopefully.
1: So fields of ruin is sort of the the term here. I mean, with regards to French politics and and the parties, uh, lots of important events that we have which to is actually
2: a pity I'm sorry I just mm. uh, a pity because the country itself is not a field of ruin yeah. <laughs> it's a very dynamic country if you We're look very upon young, the growth rate yes population thank you very yeah so startups yeah so yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. startup nation yeah. <laughs> uh, you know but and very rich cultural life and you know so great food yeah, yeah of, of course yeah of you're course. not very good at organizing uh, football
1: matches I must say <laughs> the, the, Tour know, de France you know. yeah but,
2: but um, so yeah something has to happen there,
1: yeah. And you have to make sort of political life attractive then, mm-hmm. because you have opposite the talent, I mean, but apparently they go other places now. I mean, yeah. 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 If we move to the uh, very uh, tragic events in, in Ukraine, you and I serve on the board of the European Council of Foreign Relations. One of our colleagues is the former prime minister of Sweden, Mr. Carl Bildt. Uh, He just did an uh, interview uh, for Danish uh, television where he said that uh, Emmanuel Macron's sort of diplomatic uh, attempt to um, establish uh, relationship with Vladimir Putin, in particularly also after the 24th of February, had been a spectacular failure. Mm-hmm. Do you agree on that? And why does he keep on phoning Vladimir Putin? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wish you could put uh, the question to him. Um, so... Um, why does he keep phoning Vladimir Putin? Um, obviously, it's been a f- yeah. He hasn't achieved anything in his dial. Uh, it's not even a dialogue here. He acknowledges it. It's not a dialogue. It's a kind of um, way of communicating. Uh, of he says he wants to keep a line of contact open. Because at you know at some stage, and that's also Olaf Scholz's argument, I think, who speaks uh, less often to Putin, but who also keeps this line open. Um, uh, you know, I think it was, it could, it's an argument which could be made uh, at the beginning of the war. Uh, when he tried to negotiate, you know, humanitarian corridors mm-hmm. and things like exchange of prisoners or whatever, after Bucha and the massacres and the war, when it became obvious that war crimes were being committed, it was an argument which was much more difficult to be made, of course. And so, actually, uh, Macron after Bucha stopped calling uh, Putin for several weeks. Um, Actually, it's, he says it's not only uh, it's not always him who calls. Sometimes Putin calls himself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so he has to so pick d- up the phone. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he cut the communication for a few weeks because of what happened, and then, so he says, um, every time he talks to Putin, it's coordinated with President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. That point was made to to the press uh, very uh, a few days ago. And I guess
1: we should also say that Macron is still president of the European Union. Right. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so he also says it's coordinated. He 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 briefs his European partners after each uh, uh, conversation, but I don't think there's much to brief them about, apparently. (laughs) And so, um, uh, but you know, the mood has turned. And I remember uh, at, the, at the Munich Security Conference just a few days before... You were there, right? No, no, sorry. Um, I was stuck in quarantine, COVID. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a few days before the war started. Yeah. Just a few days. And the Estonian Prime Minister, yeah. uh, Kalas yeah. was there. And I asked her, yeah. what do you think of Macron's uh, phone conversations with Putin? Do you think it's right? And she said you know, it's okay, he, he, we are consulted all the time. Uh, it's not like when, you know, the, a couple of years earlier when Macron had his own unilateral um, uh, reset initiative with Putin, he she said this and time, he invited it's invited really different, the, he consults, yeah. we are fully consulted, we are fully briefed after yeah. each phone call, that's fine. But, and now she's one of the most critical voices. Yeah, because I right. went to
1: Tallinn. I mm-hmm. went to the Leonard Merrick. Oh, yeah, conference. you went to Tallinn. There she was mm-hmm. really, really forceful. Yeah, exactly. Said, she said the following. I mean, uh, if you keep on phoning Putin, then he will simply not get the point that he's isolated.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So why do you yeah, keep on yeah. fooling,
1: was sort of her, yeah. her argument. Yeah. So
2: um, so now we have this um, issue of, you know, as I said, the mood has changed. We've, we've gone through the various phases in this war. Yeah? You, we had the first phase where uh, we thought Ukraine would be crushed in three days. Mm. Okay. Zelensky
1: it's, would be evacuated yeah, yeah, to yeah. California. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This, this <laughs> didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, then we had a phase with kind of, you know, euphoria when we were so marvelling at the the, the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people and and army. Winning. And and we thought they were going to win. Win, yeah. Yeah. Um, And now we are in a third phase where things are really very, very difficult for the Ukrainian armed forces. You know, there's this... uh, Uh, massive artillery fire and and firepower from from Russian forces. And we see that we are probably going into a war of attrition, which is going to be uh, horrible for for everybody. Um, So now you have, so what should we do? Um, Of course, I think all Western powers agree that Ukraine must win the war. And including, <laughs> including President Macron, mm-hmm. uh, you know, including Olaf Scholz, I think everybody agrees that this war has to be won by Ukraine. Where we disagree is, I mean, or there are differences. What does winning mean? Mm. Yeah. When do you declare victory? Yeah. Yeah. Um, does Ukrainian does victory for Ukraine equals defeat for Russia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think most Western leaders say uh, on West, in Western Europe, namely Scholz, Macron, Draghi, will say we want Ukraine to be victorious, but they avoid saying we want Russia to be defeated. Why? And so of course, uh, more... Uh, Towards the east and towards the north, in the Baltic states, of Mm. course, you will have leaders who will say Russia has to be defeated, Russia has to be weakened uh, so that it never starts again. So, for them, so you you, we have to not humiliated, and not humiliated, and and it should be humiliated. And so, we have two schools of thoughts, if you want, which are which can be explained by geographical and historic differences so of course if you're Polish or if you're Estonian or Lithuanian, uh, Russia for you is an existential threat really. Uh, you, uh, Go to the
1: museum in Tallinn, which I just visited. You uh-huh. see the history. I mean, you see what happened. I mean, sort of. Right. And then also, as Kallas was saying at this conference I mm-hmm. went to, well, look upon history, look upon what happened. I mean, I was during the Second World War. Look upon Georgia. Look upon yeah. <laughs> Crimea. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have yeah. Ukraine. If we don't stop, yeah. if we don't learn the lesson from this, yeah. just continue. And right. now we just had Putin's yeah. Peter the Great uh, yeah. speech where he distinctively mentioned, Nava. I mean, that, yeah, so, absolutely. So, so that's obviously mm-hmm.
2: the thinking yeah. in Estonia, yeah. but as you mentioned... And they're very close, close to the threat itself, yeah. of course. Yeah. Poland was occupied for 200 years. Exactly, so you yeah. So, you know, you, it you can, it's 100%. a very understandable yeah. uh, perception of the threat. It's a very real threat for them. And as I said, it's existential. Um, for us, you know, it's different. Um uh, and 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 so I think Macron and Scholz, they try to be to plan for the day after the war ends. I don't think they want to. Isn't that a bit early? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, I I don't think they want to force Zelensky to make territorial concessions. I don't think it's their point. Yeah, so uh, they're not
1: uh, like Henry Kissinger. I mean, no,
2: no. I think yeah. since the beginning they said that it's up to the Ukrainians to decide. When they want to uh, uh, stop, or how much they can achieve, and that the goal is uh, restoring inter- uh, uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine and its sovereignty. Now, what does again? What does territorial integrity mean? Does it mean going uh, just to the bo- to the twenty-four February mm-hmm. border, okay. a contact line? Uh, or does it mean pushing back the f- Russians back to where they were in 2014? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it mean getting Crimea back? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this is really up in the air at the moment, and I think this is very much what uh, also, uh, because I, I think it's now more or less public, I mean, Rome has announced it, that Scholz, Macron and Draghi will go to Kiev uh, this week together, which is a good thing, Um, and they should have done it earlier, obviously, Uh, and so they will probably, you know, think, talk about this with Zelensky, but it also very much depends on what is happening on the ground, and on what kind of weapons deliveries we can get to them, in which, uh, at which pace, Uh, you know, these are all factors that, are not easy to to control, I think. It's not only... uh, Of course, in Germany, there's this big controversy... Titan vendor. Yeah, yeah, and why doesn't Germany uh, deliver more uh, heavy weapons? And now I read, I'm not a military expert, but (laughs) uh, I read from military experts uh, that now what is needed is is artillery, Mm. not so much heavy weapons, Mm. but artillery. Uh, They really need a lot of artillery. Now you know, all the logistics, uh, so these are... Um, uh,
1: but in principle, what you're saying mm-hmm. is that there, it's not really a big disagreement on what is happening now, I mean, within the European, how one it's should... It's on the
2: future. It's and, on and the future. And it's on how to deal with Russia. I mean, uh, and it's also, you know, there's so much at stake in this. I think also everybody's mm. aware that It's not only Ukraine which is at stake. It's not Ukrainian territory. It's uh, it's the international order. It's the European security. It's the security of Europe. Because I think we, we, even Macron is aware. I mean, you know, I totally disagree with this characterization of humiliation. I think it's a mistake. It's it's wrong to use this word. Although
1: we think that he referred to humiliation of, I mean, one should not humiliate. Russia. It wasn't Putin that he.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Putin. Yeah, I but still, a, yeah, yeah. the Financial he Times says has had We shouldn't, to that we right shouldn't or, uh, humiliate Russia, yeah. um, because um, you know you don't. Well, he has this reference to World, the end of World War One, how, yeah, how Treaty uh, Versailles and how Germany was humiliated and so on. He's also very much concerned about the nuclear. Um, the possibility of nuclear escalation. So, so Scholz, yeah. And so is Scholz, right. But still even if you think you, uh, Russia shouldn't be humiliated, I think you shouldn't say it publicly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a word which is very, which has a very heavy uh, meaning for Central and Eastern mm-hmm. European uh, countries and you know, it's all the history, it goes, you know, it, it, it should be avoided, this word, definitely. But... Um, I forgot what I was... No,
1: but anyway, but, but, why, but why? I mean, if there's now all this, and I've been really, really struck, I mean, by being in Germany, speaking to lots mm-hmm. of Central and East Europeans and also but traveling. Uh, I mentioned already Italian, mm-hmm. but also a number of other countries. I mean, this really great concern, what's happening in France, what, what's happening in Germany? I mean, is there some kind of a game plan? Will will Germany and France somehow push Zelensky into making a, a dirty deal, so to speak? Is it then wise, seen from that perspective, to travel to uh, to Kiev in that configuration? So Charles Mac. Macron why, Draghi? Why not bring Duda or somebody from Central and Eastern uh, Europe? Or, Duda, or he's been there tons yeah, of times. Duda has yes, but
2: been there several times. He has his own agenda. No, I think they need, I mean, I don't know what they are going to do, but I think first they are going to... Very no, disappointed
1: no, you don't know. To do. okay.
2: <laughs> uh, I think they want to talk about European Union accession also. Yeah, yeah. we're
1: getting to that in and, a second. Yeah. Um,
2: uh, but I think it's important that they go and show their support for Zelensky physically... Um, so, uh, and uh, it's, it's a very important statement also from Western Europe, you mm. know, to, to show that it's not only central, uh, you know, people like Duda um, and, uh, you know, Ursula von der Leyen went, went there twice. Yeah. So it's, this weekend, it's, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, they had to go. It's, it's a belated uh, visit. Mm. Yeah. yeah,
1: but Charles has said that he is not a guy for photo ops. And he's not going to fly in there and fly out again. So I'm it's not sure who he's he referred to. a guy to. for
2: what? <laughs> what? Sorry? He's a guy for what? So.
1: Uh, apparently action, uh, yeah. <laughs> according to him. So that's what I, I want to ask you. So I presume that then it's not enough just to travel there and have your picture taken. Mm. Um, so what do you think that these three men will have... Sort of, Good point. yeah, in their whatever suitcases when they get there. Are we talking candidate status, are we talking artillery, or <laughs> what are we talking about here?
2: I hope they uh, will talk about the candidate status uh, and uh, that they will decide to give it to, to, to Ukraine. Can yeah. you actually
1: imagine them flying over there? saying to Zelensky...
2: They can't fly over there. Oh,
1: uh, uh, sorry, yeah, pardon, yeah, yeah.
2: Taking the train, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm still dreaming about the days you could fly, sorry, yeah. They're taking the train, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: Which is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: okay, so they can discuss it among themselves. Mm-hmm. They have more time then, presumably, mm-hmm. if they're on the same train, but we don't know whether... Yeah, yeah, we don't. Anyway, know. okay, so, but can you imagine that once they get there, that they would actually say... Yeah, we thought about this, you know, for a couple of weeks, and you know, we think, are you not really no, ready to have also, candidate yeah. status? So please join the uh, whatever. And Kosovo. also,
2: they cannot uh, promise him that promise Zelensky that they will give because it's up for the Commission to decide first. Yeah? Uh, that's European on the 17th commission.
1: of. Uh, that's on Friday. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, and they are supposed to go there on Thursday. Ah, uh, so back, okay. um, back. Uh, right. Yeah. So uh, you don't
1: have to have been a minister to know that obviously they know what's in that report.
2: Yeah. So okay, so they
1: know what the result is. Yeah. And uh, but they wouldn't an be
2: able to announce anything. No, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think because you know, it's not even public that they are going there. We're talking Well, you just yeah. made
1: it public. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, la stampa announced it and yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, <laughs> and we uh, we more or less know that it's uh, it hasn't been denied or anything, so it's it's going to yeah. happen. But um uh, you know, of course, and Macron al- always said that he would go if there was some um, useful yeah, yeah. thing to do. So if he goes, there's something to 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 do. Yeah, yeah exactly. So and
1: that also, con- so, okay. So basically, I think we can make the prediction that they will at least support candidate status. And then yeah. who do we have left in the European Union? Denmark. We've not said anything so far, but I don't think Denmark will go against Ukraine uh, if you have Germany and France yeah. and Italy. Uh, Hungary, you
2: can always count on Hungary too, you know. but uh, uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, okay. But on the other hand, yeah.
2: yeah so
1: that seems to be settled more or less, at least sort of with the candidate status. And there's a completely different... Hopefully, thing. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Okay, let's... Hopefully. let's. <laughs> but sort of... Seen from where I'm sitting, so to speak, here, (laughs) and (laughs) also in general, if Ukraine would a certain state join the European Union, I mean, that would obviously be terrific, because then it would be a different Ukraine. I mean, so it would be... You
2: know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, yeah?
1: Yeah, right, yeah. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I was almost going to make the comparison with Turkey, but that was probably a dangerous uh, comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But obviously, one will have to, I mean, if they actually manage... To join, it will be a different European Union and a different Ukraine. But where's France in that Europe? Uh I mean... having followed up with the debate on Eastern enlargement, mm-hmm. I mean, that was not always sort of, I mean, something that was grand news for, for France because you became more marginalized sort of over here, whereas Germany being in the middle and then you had all the Central and Eastern European countries. Yeah. So what if Ukraine, even if they don't become member, but at least sort of for a long time starts to cooperate with yeah, the European so Union, doesn't
2: that change the balance of it, power? It does change, you know, uh, we were talking about the French domestic political scene, which is in the middle of a big change and I think have a huge change also going on in, in Europe and in you know ahead of us uh, because this war uh, is really shaking the foundations of everything of security of uh, relationship with Russia and of um, the center of gravity I think in in within the European Union we we can see over the past few weeks how uh, central european governments leaders and and northern and and baltic leaders uh, have been you know uh, much more active much more uh, vocal and in fact they are taking more uh, getting more weight you know mm-hmm. I- within the european union because first because they had been telling us for a long time, Russia is a threat, you know, this is yeah, going to happen. can feel happen. vindicated, yeah, yeah. And, and now, you know, it's like we told you yeah. so, we were right, yeah. So they feel vindicated. And so they feel... But Nord Stream 2 was still only... Nord Stream uh, uh, 2, yeah, I mean... Commercial you know, <laughs>
1: project for yeah, private Germany industry. Germany was <laughs>
2: still, you know, yeah. yeah. And we have Chancellor Merkel, <laughs> uh, or yeah, pre- former Chancellor Merkel, defending still, you know, all this, her policy... Towards Russia. Uh, so um, they they they're an important factor now uh, and they want Ukraine to be included in this European family, and and you know Ukraine mm-hmm. obviously wants the right to be included. Um, uh, and when it does, and again it will take years because you know. <laughs> Ukraine before the war was not ready to join the European Union yeah. definitely but after the war y- you see the level of destruction which yeah, is yeah. Doing, being done there it's just unfathomable it's yeah. it's you know um, sometimes you see the pictures and it reminds me the pictures of Warsaw after mm. World War II or yeah, Germany sure. you know yeah, it's absolutely. it's a, uh, it's huge it's yeah. really very difficult to 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 realize and so and I'm not talking you know, even mentioning the human mm. uh, toll. There was this, um, uh, I heard the other day on French radio a French uh, fighter who is fighting with the U- Ukrainian forces and he said, we're talking about the people who are killed, the soldiers who are killed, but nobody mentions the number of, peop- of soldiers who are uh, maimed and, and uh, mm. um, he says, I go to hospitals and I see... Young men without limbs, yeah. and you know, at- atrocious uh, wounds, and I mean, this is going to have a terrible cost, uh-huh. on also on the Ukrainian population. It will, you know, it will really take this country will take years to, to be rebuilt. And I think the Europeans uh, will do that. Will help. Will have to help them. Um, and so joining them, uh, jo- having them in join the European Union will take years. Right, uh, so we'll have to find oh, a way.
1: Decades, to quote your president, yeah, mm. or could take up to several decades. I think.
2: Was no, 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 no. Uh, it's somebody else who said that. But uh, decades? No, really? Okay. We'll check it after. Okay. It. okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't think. But decades, but it will take a long time. Yeah. So, but it will be a political force. Yeah. You know, um, and so as I said, I think the center of gravity will move towards the east. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this trio, <laughs> Macron, Scholz, uh, Draghi, uh, that, that will feel a little bit unstable, I yeah. think. Yeah, we'll have to find, and, whatever, uh, yeah. find new yeah. new way of working together and new coalitions maybe. And then we have Northern Europe, yeah? <laughs> and we have Finland and Sweden joining NATO and we have Denmark joining the European uh, defense and mm-hmm. so on. So um, it's really, mm-hmm. we have several new dynamics mm-hmm. at work here and I think it's going to change a lot of things mm-hmm. within the European Union. But before we, we get to your own sort of role also at Le Monde
1: and your personal leadership and so
2: forth. vendor. Zeit-
1: yeah, yeah, we had your own vendor Zeit- No, no, I just want, I mean, uh, just understand one thing. The public support in France... About the war, uh-huh. I mean, are we moving into a phase now of, at a certain stage, Ukraine fatigue? Um, of now, we've seen in the it was in the EU. I mean, not necessarily due to France, but I mean, the sixth uh, package of sanctions was far oh. more difficult to agree upon than the, the first first well, five ones. And in your in your in your presidential campaign and your and the parliamentary campaign, was Ukraine really? a... a, a was that, is it a
2: topic? Yeah. No, that no, it no. was in the presidential campaign, it was a factor because... Um, At the end of the campaign. Uh, well, b- Le because Le Pen yeah. and Melanchoe uh, yeah. originally were big uh, fans of Russia and Putin. Mm. So um, uh, when the war started, they had to <laughs> change their tap tune. Tap dance, yeah. yeah. Tap dance, <laughs> and, you know, really change their tune because it was so unpopular, they couldn't defend anymore their positions of, you know, uh, and, and of course Macron was attacking Marine Le Pen all the time by reminding people how she went to Moscow mm. uh, to meet Putin in the Kremlin and, and, and borrow money, yeah, to finance her party. Well, so you're
1: speaking to... Russia, you are speaking to your banker, wasn't that more? Yeah, yeah. He said when yeah. you
2: speak to Russia, yeah. you are speaking to your banker, yeah. right? Because she borrowed nine million euros. I don't
1: think that one was improvised. Which <laughs>
2: is still um, uh, reimbursing. Mm. Yeah, so she still owes money to to this uh, Russian bank. So, um, and Mélenchon, <laughs> you know, he was really for for ages. You know, he he was an admirer of Hugo Chavez of all these. Uh, uh populist firebrands and and um he yeah, I think he thought highly of, of Putin and of, you know, great admirer of Russia. So he changed it completely. And, they, you know, the French, there was no ambiguity in the French public opinion about the war. It was, yeah, we had to support Ukraine and, and, and it was a war of aggression and, uh, and you cannot change borders like this and mm. you can, you know, and territorial integrity and it's a whole international... So I think this was well understood. And um, so it was a factor, yes, I think, uh, in in the presidential election. Now, um, of course, prices started to go up, gas prices and the cost of living uh, started to go up. Yeah, yeah, that was also a factor. And uh, so Marine Le Pen had to say she supported sanctions. Yeah, she even had to say that she supported sanctions as long as they didn't hurt French people. Um, yeah, yeah, so uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, we're yeah. here with the cost of living going up. I don't think there's really Ukraine fatigue yet. Uh, it's still very much in the news. And so what I, about your readership? I must say my colleagues are uh, doing a wonderful job of keeping it in the news. We uh, particularly at Le Monde, but also other media. We have a huge coverage of, of the war in Ukraine. We have like four teams at the moment of Le, at Le Monde of reporters and photographers. And they're doing an outstanding job there, including in Donbass, where the fighting is going on, but also... On human stories, and um, it, it's, and uh, when you know, we have this system to see which are oh, yeah. the most read stories, and uh, and, and Ukraine uh, is still at the top. Okay. Yeah, even during an election uh, time. So yeah. I think, so you may say it's an educated readership, and so maybe that's probably also a, a factor, but. Um, um, you know, there will come a point mm. when the cost of living, of course, may may become really too much of a problem. I, in uh, Germany, as you know, it's a yeah, huge issue. Yeah. I mean,
1: they even stopped mm-hmm. eating sparkle. I mean... Uh, I mean, for Germans, this is really a big thing. I mean, this is the season, right? But they always say, oh, they, they, it's getting too expensive. Too expensive. So and strawberry yeah, yeah, is a big yeah, problem now, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. so you see, mm-hmm. and, and well, as you've yeah. also been following the German debate, you also have yeah. this about, well... Yeah, yeah no, this it's this a difficult issue, and, uh, and it's, yeah. I
2: think it's the responsibility of uh, of the media and politicians also mm. to keep it, you know, a priority also. Which
1: is our cue for the next topic, leadership. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and you were the first, uh, as was also mentioned, the first uh, female uh, editor-in-chief of Le Monde. When was this? This was it's in 2000 that, uh, 2010
2: and 2011. Yeah? yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You now actually also have a- and The
2: paper it has, was born in 1944. 1944,
1: yes. And you were the first woman then. Mm-hmm. Was that t- difficult to get to the top, so to speak?
2: Um, yes. Woo! <laughs> 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 actually, I was... Had to stay there, maybe, also. You no, know, actually, I was not aiming for the top. That's an interesting thing. Okay. Because uh, I think that was very much uh, my generation problem, uh-huh. that we were not aiming for the top. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, Because it was... Um, It was probably seen as too difficult. And also, I think power was not attractive to me because I saw close how it was exercised in my paper. And um, this is of the record, yes. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And for me, it was very much a male thing. Mm. I mean, there were women, of course, uh, uh, a lot of journalists uh, were female journalists, but um, none of them uh, were in the top... Um, echelons, you know, they were not uh, in leading positions, and I complained about, it, you know, I complained ah, okay. about, it. yeah, I said this is not good, you know. I spent eight years in the United States, and when I came back ah. as a correspondent. And when I came back, I had all this idea about diversities, and you know, in France, we, you know, I remember com- <laughs> So a thing müssen must auch you in French, yeah. I came back. I went to uh, I went to an editorial conference, and much to my surprise, they were all white males around that table. And so I went to see the publisher, and I said, "There's something wrong here, you know. Uh, in the United States, this is not possible. You don't." have just white males around the table deciding for the rest of the... uh, And I said, he said, what do you mean? And I said, I think you need diversity. (laughs) And he said... Uh, this is a very French political thing. Um he said, "But Sylvie, we are already very diverse. We mm. not only have we have not only Trotskyites now in the news in the, in the <laughs> okay, yeah. That.
1: Yeah, So it. okay, yeah.
2: <laughs> so that was his idea of diversity. So um, Yeah, okay.
1: Good yeah. definition, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it was an uphill battle, yeah. right? Um and um so uh, I said you need um uh, I started with women. I said, you need diversity with women. Ethnic diversity was, you know, for the next stage. <laughs> and, uh, it's still a problem. And, um, uh, so I, I complained about the lack of women. And so then came a, a point when there was a big crisis. We always have big crises, yeah. not only in France, but also in the papers. And, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, there was a big crisis, the editor resigned, and there was a new team which had to be appointed. And so the publisher said, now, Sylvie, you come to that, in that team. And as deputy, well, Uh, there were several deputy editors, so he asked me to become deputy editor. And I said, no, no, I'm not interested. Yeah, was that sometimes what happens? I was not attracted. And uh, I had a nice job, and I didn't want to take this uh, responsibility. And he said, um, Sylvie, you cannot always complain (laughs) (laughs) about women not being in leading positions and turn it down when you're offered one so I had to take it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and So So I, you asked for it, basically. Yeah, yeah. and I, it was pretty unpleasant because I was the only woman in yeah. a team of men. And so um, I really didn't like it. It was unpleasant. There was a lot of competition. It was rough. Uh, you had to fight. Uh, so, so that's what I mean by male exercise of power. It was, uh, it was brutal, yeah. Um, and so I was unhappy, yeah.
1: <laughs> and how did you survive? And so I so survived strategy? by going abroad. Ah, okay, yeah. yeah. So and where did you go?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Asia yeah. um, with my family and my husband. And um, uh, after three years, uh, a new publisher there was another crisis. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a new publisher was... But not a
1: Fuse of Ruin here. No, no, that's <laughs> yeah.
2: And he called me and said, uh, Sylvia, I would like you to become the editor-in-chief. And um, and he was a very... I, I had worked with him before. He's uh, By the way, he's an excellent bike rider. He's mm. passionate about this. Okay, okay, okay. Does, okay yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'll phone th- him up if Macron comes. He's also... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, uh, Quite famous writer in France, Eric Fottorino. But so anyway, I had a very, I liked him very much. I had worked with him. I knew he was absolutely uh, easygoing with with women, and that he had more or less the same idea as me of exercising power. And so I said yes. And so then, once I was the editor, it was okay. I, I didn't have a problem anymore, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, um, you know, I. Uh, choose most of my team. I had a hard time attracting women in that team. And how did you then... So uh, there were a couple, I only had a couple of them because they were not interested again. And this is really a challenge, Mm. I think, that uh, women are not so interested in this. You know, they they are good at doing things. Uh, They enjoy doing things. Uh, Not so much deciding, yeah. Uh, This is something uh, of a problem. You know, yesterday I went to the uh, Louisiana Museum, and there's this uh, fantastic, uh, wonderful museum. I I envy you, it's really... uh, uh, wonderful. So to come yeah. back, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it's 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 closed before I thought so earlier than <laughs> I thought so I have it. but anyway so I saw this uh, exhibition uh, of Sonia Delaunay mm? and there's an interview of her uh, in in on t- you know it's, uh, in 1968 she was interviewed on, on TV and she's uh, you can see it uh, there this interview and she says um, of course there were not many female painters. Mm? And she said, well, actually, you know, the average, it's a pity because the average female painters are better than the average male painters. (laughs) And um, and the interviewer, uh, who was actually a famous singer, Jacques Dutron, um, (laughs) um, asked her, "Oh, why is this? And she says, because they are more thorough. And... (laughs) and I think it's a a very relevant point Uh, and also uh, I think female journalists are also more thorough uh, in a way Um, you know as you know uh, uh, journalism has been really renewed and, and nurtured by the arrival of women in, in, in the journalistic force. I think they've changed a lot in the way, I mean, at least in France. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the subjects they choose, the way they report, the way they write, it, it has really uh, brought a lot of, uh, I think, creative uh, and, and new angles, more human stories also. Uh, I mean, it's made journalism uh, richer, I think. And so now we need to get them also to, <laughs> to uh, bring this thoroughness to leadership. And did yeah. you manage
1: to sort of then uh, find somebody who could then succeed you at a certain stage? I think, I mean, yeah,
2: now we have uh, an editor in chief, the second editor in chief, uh, who is a woman, Caroline Monod, yeah. And you took one. that
1: also upon yourself. I mean, quoting good old Madeleine Albright, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And my. I didn't
2: find this. Homer Boss, you yeah. say, is a very big place. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I didn't find that no. it was a problem. No, no, to work with women at all, or to have them. And sp- you
1: also basically.
2: But had part I, of your leadership what at of- I found difficult was to get them, yeah. Uh, yeah, to take these positions. Yeah, but I think it's 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 uh, it's uh, improving quite a lot now. Yeah. But in
1: France, uh, you introduced already many years ago a law uh, regarding quotas. Yeah. Level of...
2: Uh, yeah, France, surprisingly... ...upon boards yeah, and so forth. Uh, uh, yeah. Norway was the first country and then France was... Yeah, I think Norway was in 2003 had had yeah. a law uh, uh, with the uh, parity uh, mm? of, of uh, gender. Of yeah. One, yeah. And, and France passed a law in 2011. Mm? And it was quite uh, a bold law. Mm? Um, uh, it uh, uh, set a target of 40% of women... Uh, in board for corporations, yeah, Uh, for corporate boards and that was achieved. Now we are um, number one in the European Union. Uh, France is uh, the the best performing country in terms of uh, participation of women in in corporate boards. We have 45% in, in big corporations, yeah, of women on board, but Uh, uh, we uh, realized that there was a limitation to this law, which is that boards is not really where the power is. In corporations, Uh, the real power is in executive committees where Mm -hmm. you have the CEO, the COO, the CFO, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, people who actually make decisions every day, every day, and and, uh, on the company. So now we've just passed a new law, yeah, Uh, La Loi Roxin, which um, a few months ago. Which sets a new goal of 40% for executive committees, of women on executive committees of companies which have more than 1,000 employees. Um, And so that will go by stage, Um, I think it's 30% by 2026, so that companies can have a strategy of hiring and training. women to get get to those uh, positions and so they should get 30% of women on their executive committees in 2026 and 40% in 2029 yeah and if they don't um, comply uh, there's, <laughs> before the money, there's the name and shame. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, not it, the guillotine, you know. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> not yet. No, no, no. Uh, so and, th- that's, and then I mean, financial penalties. And mostly. how much debate
1: did that stir in France? I mean, the first law must have, I mean.
2: Uh, yeah. It must yeah, be yeah, controversial. first law was, contra- well, I mean, it was passed. Yeah, yeah actually, sure, sure. But I mean, uh, uh, there was discussion, yeah. You know, quotas, of course, Quotas had a bad name for a long time. And I remember Christine Lagarde told me once that she was she had been against quotas for a long time. But that eventually she uh, realized that if you don't go through quotas, you never achieve anything. And I remember when I was in the US, Colin Powell, General Colin Powell said the same about affirmative action. He mm. said he didn't like affirmative action too much, but if there hadn't been affirmative action, he would never have been made a general. Oh. So I think there's now an acceptance that even though quotas are not a pleasant thing, you know, it shouldn't exist, but we have to go through this. Some say first. it's, it's yeah. like
1: April win during the Tour de France. <laughs> that's, a different, that's a different discussion, but it, the discussion has just yeah. been more or less finalized, you could say, at the level of the European Union because the European Union just mm-hmm. two weeks ago agreed upon the first directive, which took yeah. over a decade to agree upon. So, that, so we now yeah. also see Denmark will have to implement uh, that, that directive. Yeah. So,
2: we are, so now there's yeah. also and we And I see regularly pressure in, there. in the Financial Times, actually, which is run by a woman, yeah. Rula Kalaf. And uh, so is The Economist run and so is run. Economists yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that actually corporate uh, corporations which have a high level of mm. uh, high rate of women in their boards or executive committees uh, have better results. <laughs> so we have to believe the Financial Times.
1: Yeah. Uh, we have to believe the Financial Times. Uh, <laughs> let's go back to your 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 president's visit here in 2018. Um, he quoted a French author from the 18th century, uh, Madame uh, de Stael. When I don't find the word in French, I'm sure to find it in English and German and that is exactly the European story, quote unquote. So (laughs) his definition of French is then completely linked to being European?
2: Um, Yes, I think he sees French as being European and I think I mean, I don't want to speak for oh, no. uh, the whole French people, but I think European identity is very much part of the French identity now, yes. I think, you know, we don't realize, I think, to which extent we are European. and uh, and our everyday life is European and how, uh, so I think, yeah and you mm-hmm.
1: can probably guess why i'm asking because it, no. It, no. <laughs> <laughs> no because you are french uh, because if you are danish you are this, both would be, this, this would be this would be a rather con- well, maybe not not the 2022 just when we had our referendum but, but still this about that europe and denmark is often perceived in a serious some way uh-huh. And also, I was quite struck by the fact also the way, I mean, not just the president, but in general, you speak about European sovereignty. Mm -hmm. We speak about national sovereignty. And the campaign we just had, I think one could say, one of the reasons why it was won was that the government made the case, this time we are not transferring sovereignty. Uh "Ah, Then we can vote yes, then it's not dangerous. And then we had... Then we had to deal with your president giving various <laughs> speeches in Strasbourg. Strategic yeah, autonomy. Stra- yeah, strategic yeah. autonomy and, and European sovereignty. And then at certain states, he also said something about a European army and then poof, that was a bombshell. <laughs> um,
2: but he talks a to, lot, he talks a yeah, lot. Yeah, but, but, but uh, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, no, no, no. I, and personally, I, I think, I find it fascinating because I mean, if you, we, now we just spoke about leadership. If you want to find a European leader, I mean, somebody also develops visions. I still think it's difficult to come up with with somebody who's more active than than Mm -hmm. Macron and also develops all these ideas. Take the European political community. We didn't touch upon Mm -hmm. that, but his idea also that one could have... uh, not have all countries join the EU, but you could also have maybe circles, maybe not concentric circles, but Mm -hmm. but different Mm -hmm. aspects uh, or different conceptualisation regards to that. But what is actually French thinking then? Because then we have this sort of fear that you need to just turn the entire EU into France. <laughs> <laughs> and then this European yeah. army, which will not uh, apparently not be a European army, then it goes to Africa, to all your sort of
2: old colonial problems, <laughs> right? And then here we are, right? It wasn't Denmark a colonial power? <laughs> this is not part of the Danish
1: debate, <laughs> so don't start on that. But, but that, no, I'm yeah. not I mean...
2: No, so no. I, I think it's your, between yeah, France and Europe. Of course, it's easier for a, a country with a big population, you know, to talk about European sovereignty. Then, yeah. So it's if you take this argument, it's it's also it's of course a factor. Um, as I said, Macron talks a lot, and he also campaigned about uh, about Europe a lot. Yeah, uh, then he won that first uh, election on uh, his European dream, if you want. Now, we also have a lot of sovereignists in France, people mm-hmm. who think that our yeah, well, national sovereignty is diluted in, in, in Europe, that's Marine Le Pen, for yeah. instance, Yeah. Uh, but even people on the left, uh, Yeah. but uh, I would say the majority of French people now really feel European and are quite satisfied about it. Um, European army, of course, that was a fantasy, you know, he mentioned it a couple of times, I think it was also to, um, uh, that was during Trump, uh, presidency and he wanted to pick on Trump also to make him nervous, yeah. Um, but I'm sure he was terrified. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You look
1: upon <laughs> European capabilities, yeah, sorry,
2: no. no. he was actually furious. He tweeted about this European ooh, army ooh. saying it was a very bad idea and, you know, so on. But, uh, so I, it was really a fantasy. I don't think Macron seriously ever, you know, Considered this that as a possibility. Now, what he's talking a lot about now, and including today, um, he made a speech. That it's about European defense industry. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of the sovereignty. That's part of the European sovereignty. To have, uh, what does I think from this point of view, European sovereignty means end of dependent. You know, not being over dependent. Uh, we saw that during the pandemic, right? The we masks, were completely yeah. dependent on, on uh, Asia for all, a lot of medical supplies and masks. Mm, uh, yeah. mm. um, uh, and uh, the same with Russia, of course. Gas, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> gas, petrol. So uh, France is not too de- uh, is lucky because, I mean, lucky you know, we have this nuclear energy, yeah? And so um, it's, we are not, we don't but have... But when you have
1: these nuclear plants, last time I checked, well, you need <laughs> to buy something, right, in order for, to get your energy. And yeah, yeah, last yeah, time yeah, I yeah. checked, you buy that in Russia. But let's let's not get into a debate about nuclear <laughs> energy. It, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, all these kind of dependencies. Yeah. Uh, European sovereignty means also having uh, a way of, you know, not relying on dictatorships or on unreliable uh, regimes to um, be a power. Yeah. Or yeah. Not
1: relying on Facebook or Google. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. So yeah. I think this is mostly what he means, and and I think this idea has got traction uh, a lot. Mm. Yeah. Even in Germany, which was uh, reluctant at the beginning, and 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 uh, you know the. Con- coalition contract, uh, the government coalition contract. You have European sovereign- sovereignty written all over it. Yeah. So um, oh, yeah, and the Danish yeah. Prime
1: Minister also signed up. to right. sovereignty yeah. in Versailles. Yeah, it
2: was mm-hmm. not really sort of then portrayed back. So, to, so, you know. so this idea, and and then there was this uh, strategic autonomy issue, which also was very controversial and and uh, hurt uh, uh, feelings in in several parts mm-hmm. of Europe. So we've dropped the name the word autonomy ah yeah you know now, so we now talk it's just strategic, about strategic sovereignty yeah another word that
1: people yeah? no have to or well,
2: european sovereignty so it's all you know yeah. So what about open strategic sovereignty? And that's also very good. Yeah, no, then, we'll, uh, then,
1: then we are in. I mean, that's, that's, uh, good, that's yeah. at least that's what the if it's Danish open, Commission always yeah, Open, yeah, if it's yeah, open. Yeah, it's uh, very good. Yeah. But maybe just to end on that, because I think there's also. I mean, there are many differences between our our two countries. I mean, we're better at football than you are. for Just to m- mention one thing. No? Uh, anyway. Um, Starting. It, but but I think there's also a difference that obviously, if you are French president, and now I'm now not getting into your history. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I mean, there is. This overall sort of also responsibility that I also sense now during the Ukraine crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, the food crisis, for instance, also yeah. something that is very high on the agenda. Of, uh, in yeah, France I mean, yeah. Is here.
2: Uh, you can see that France and Germany. I mean, the countries are more. Uh, out, uh, outside or orientated than yeah. Poland or the Baltic States, also for yeah. understandable reasons. But it is true that it's uh, mostly Western leaders who are worrying about the food crisis yeah. and the global south. And, you know, uh, why is it that it's all huge. these uh, leaders, um, in, in, you know, they represent, I think, two-thirds of the world population, don't support us on this uh, Ukraine war uh, uh, somebody like Lula, uh, the mm. Brazilian Brazil? uh, Lula da Silva in Brazil, thinks Putin is a great guy. South though Africa. he's a democrat, yeah. you know, Lula is a real democrat. So we have a problem, and I think. Um, Yes, it's it's uh, it's not only Macron, but a lot of Western leaders do worry about this, and they have to worry about this. And of course, if there's a huge food crisis because of this grain uh, lack of ex- impossibility to export grain from from Ukraine, uh, you know in Europe we will have a problem also, because what will happen to these people, in starving people, if you have starvation in Africa or in the Middle East, of course, it's going to have consequences for us also. So, you know, it's also their responsibility um, to, to think about this and, and you know, uh, to, to, to also to have to, to explain uh, to counter the Russian propaganda that if there is uh, a food crisis it 's our fault because of our sanctions on Russia. so this is a narrative which Russia has been spreading, and that it's uh, very important to to, to counter
1: hundred uh, percent and I think that's I mean the food crisis is an area I mean we could could spend very long time on, but we mm-hmm. don't have the time for that. But I just want to say one thing about going back to 2018. I think one of the reasons why Emmanuel Macron was also so popular in Denmark was because of his climate change program. Yes. So just literally two minutes. Is he as green as he was back then? <laughs> has <laughs> he, ha, what has he actually yeah, achieved? I think, well,
2: no, no. Well, uh, green uh, greens in France is, he say he hasn't achieved anything and he hasn't... Uh, They criticize him a lot for not having, you know, implemented as many things as he wanted. Or as he promised, um, so he had a kind of epiphany between the two rounds of the presidential election because he realized he had a problem after the first round that he needed to uh, really push this issue uh, stronger, and he um, actually stole an idea from from uh, Mélenchon, <laughs> Mélenchon's program, which was to have um, green planning, to you know, to have uh, ecological planification. Mm. And at government at the level of the prime minister yeah. and so it's a very um, voluntary uh, push if you want and we'll see how it is implemented of course yeah uh, but it, it looks like finally he took stride you know and uh, decided that really something had to he had to go further than this. He did try with this Nicola Hulot, who resigned mm. the day you interviewed him. No no relation, I guess, no. Uh, but, um, you know, he, in his first uh, term, he thought that it would be a good idea to uh, take as environment minister, climate minister, uh, 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 an icon mm. of the Green Movement, who was Nicola Hulot. Uh, but he was not a politician and it, you know it, it failed the, 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 for various reasons that we don't have time to, to elaborate on, but uh, the, the experiment failed completely. So now he's trying another strategy, which is to have people who are um, experienced mm. technocrats, you may say, or experienced mm. politicians or experienced government uh, people, to implement uh, this um, green deal or green programme. Mm. So we'll see if it works better.
1: But it's still yeah. very much on mm-hmm. its agenda.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As I indicated, we could go on for another hour at least, but uh, we do not have that time. No, thank th- you ever so much but for I have bas- something for you. <laughs> <Goodness>.
2: <laughs> yeah, since I know you're a fan, so you can open it. Yeah,
1: can I open it? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for. Um, making sure that we will now have to read Le Monde,
2: obviously, yeah? Yes, it's also, I should, you know, it's in French, of course, and it's better in French, but it's also in English now, we have, uh, um, Le Monde in English, which hmm? started a couple of months ago. Yeah, I'm a subscriber. Yeah. I oh, must you're admit. a subscriber, yeah. excellent. So, yeah.
1: Because as yeah. you know, my, 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 my French is um,
2: oh, work has to be improved. You're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 this will help you, I think. Yeah.
1: Could this be a book on the Tour de France? Yes, it's a book on the Tour de France. <laughs> so, the <laughs> Grand Depart. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you ever so much. We are now ready for... Um, Whatever happens in France, uh, both with oh. regards to politics you and you obviously much. also sports, and yeah. we will uh, all read your columns also in the New York Times. So thank in you. for. the
2: Financial Times. No. Also, I write yeah, yeah.
1: in both yeah. papers. Yeah. So Thank you very much, and thank you so much for coming. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's excellent. Thank you.
1: Du har lyttet til en podcast fra Det Konge Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesseret. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jakobsen.